Hey everybody, this is Chainlink God. You probably know me best as that one frog on Twitter who's absolutely obsessed with Chainlink, and I wouldn't deny that. I thought I would create this podcast, this recording, this monologue, whatever you want to call it, uh, to break down the new Chainlink 2.0 white paper that was released just a couple of days ago. Um, I recommend reading it if you haven't already, but this will be kind of a breakdown of the core points and the core innovations that are presented within this paper. Uh, normally I kind of break these things down on Twitter and I do plan to do that as well, but I think this audio format can be an efficient way to get a lot of this information over to people because it is quite dense with a lot of information. I mean, it's 136 pages. It's it, Again, if you haven't, I recommend taking a read, but um, kind of to provide some context if you don't already know, Chainlink is a decentralized Oracle network. It connects smart contracts and blockchain networks to external data resources. And in fact, in 2017, in the original white paper, it defined Oracle networks as a way to transfer off-chain data on-chain so it can be consumed and used by smart contract applications. And that's the most dominant use case of Oracles. But within this new 2021 Chainlink white paper for Chainlink 2.0, it, the, the main thing is that it's expanding the definition of an oracle, not just data delivery, but also off-chain computation, and specifically trust-minimized off-chain computation, in order to provide the ability to create what are called hybrid smart contracts, which combine on-chain and off-chain infrastructure in order to create a more advanced application compared to contracts which are just on-chain code. So. You can really think of oracles like Chainlink as providing everything that blockchains fundamentally cannot, whether that's due to cost, scalability, privacy, or whatever. The, the value proposition of oracles isn't just data delivery. It's providing the off-chain layer for everything that the blockchain doesn't already provide. And so within this paper, it kind of defines that as a DAWN, a decentralized oracle network, an abbreviation of that which are fundamentally different than the Oracle networks that Chainlink offers today. And I'll get into that once we start diving into the white paper sections. But before we get into that, I would just like to highlight that this paper was written by 14 academic researchers and Oracle experts, which is pretty incredible. I mean, there is a lot of brain power backing this paper. And in particular, I like to highlight Ari Jules. He is the chief scientist of Chainlink Labs. He was previously chief scientist of RSA Labs. He wrote the white papers for Town Crier and Deco, which were later acquired by Chainlink. He's the professor of computer science at Cornell Tech. He's the co-director of IC3, in which Chainlink is a partner in. He formalized proof of work, and get this, 1999. He has numerous, countless papers, uh, including things like proof of retrievability, RFID, and he has over 39,000 academic citations. I mean, his it is truly amazing that somebody of this caliber is working on creating better Oracle technology. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing. And there's all the other authors, too many to name in this podcast, but truly, I recommend looking into the works that these authors have written because it's, it's some truly groundbreaking stuff. And so now we can start to get into the white paper, uh, the information it presents. And so with, with the abstract, it really hammers home that there are seven foundational goals that these dons aim to achieve, and that's hybrid smart contracts, abstracting away complexity, scalability, confidentiality, 
order fairness for transactions, trust minimization, and incentive-based cryptoeconomic security. And yes, that's a lot, but we'll get into each one of these. And I think these first two, it's kind of important to encapsulate the importance of because that's what the rest of the paper is aiming on achieving. So the first is hybrid smart contracts. And I mentioned this previously, but it's essentially the composition of an application which consists of both on-chain and off-chain infrastructure. So you use a blockchain as an immutable storage for definitive state transitions, for a smart contract composability, the, the ownership of cryptocurrency and its transfers. And you can combine that with oracles, which provide the connectivity, the privacy, the scalability, and everything else that blockchains don't, so that you have a full spectrum decentralized application, much more capable than contracts that are just on-chain code alone. And so it's this is like the essential aim of this paper is creating these hybrid smart contracts. And in a way that kind of exists like Aave and Synthetics, they're on-chain code, but they fundamentally rely upon price data delivered by oracles. And without that price data, they wouldn't exist. So you can kind of think of those as hybrid smart contracts, but I think the goal of this paper is hybrid smart contracts in the sense that the computation of the contract happens off-chain almost entirely. And you use the on-chain code just as like a settlement layer or dispute resolution. You try to minimize how much computation you do on-chain to increase that privacy, that connectivity, that scalability. Uh, and so this, this second point, with these hybrid smart contracts, which consist of two different points, that's a little more complicated than just a single you know, on-chain piece of code. And so one of the goals described is creating a compiler where a developer could just create an application as he does today put it through this compiler, and it would automatically generate the code required to be deployed on-chain and off-chain, each component, using whatever blockchains, whatever DAWNs, or external services that are required. So this would dramatically simplify creating these more advanced applications. And you can kind of think of it as like a, with traditional software, you write that in Java or C++ or some other language, you put that through a compiler, now you can run that software on any hardware, Intel, AMD, integrated circuits, it doesn't matter. You can run it in any environment. So this compiler would basically do the same thing. You take your code, you run it through the compiler. Now you can deploy that on any chain, any DAWN, using any external services. So these two goals with hybrid smart contracts and abstracting away complexity are ultimately achieved by all of the other goals laid out in the paper. So now it's kind of where we get into the meat of the paper, where it discusses the architectural overview, where essentially these dons, they come to consensus about data, about computation, whatever, using a Byzantine fault tolerance consensus protocol. And that can take the form of any type of BFT protocol. It's, it's very flexible. It's that heterogeneous design that Chainlink already has today. So dons actually have a ledger but it's not a standalone ledger like a blockchain. It's a ledger that's specifically anchored to a main chain like Ethereum or any other smart contract blockchain. So it, in that aspect, it's much more of a layer two than its own standalone chain. And, but it does have that, the same properties that it is an append-only ledger that it's public and it's available. Uh, those can be kind of changed as well given how flexible Chainlink is. But it's the same permissionless design where anybody can spin up their own node, they can spin up their own DAWN of any nodes, and they can use that on any blockchain to uh, enhance 
their application. And so it kind of also goes over the trust model where the type of Byzantine fault tolerant consensus protocol used, that could be a committee based where you have a predefined group of nodes you can select or you can have some formalized method for selecting them, or you can use a permissionless protocol. And so you can ultimately choose whatever works for your specific use case because each DAWN is built to serve a specific use case. And so you can even use a hybrid model where a committee of nodes power a DAWN that support a permissionless chain. And you can even have it where the nodes of that chain are also DAWN nodes at the same time. So there is just an insane amount of flexibility of how you want your specific DAWN to be created. And so a DAWN itself really consists of three fundamental components, uh, networking, computation, and storage kind of like a computer in general. So you have networking where you have these adapters, which are like chain like adapters today, and but they could be used to bi-directionally send and receive data from blockchains, from web servers, external storage networks, or even other Dawn networks. So you can pretty much connect and to receive and send messages from any other system, which of course blockchains can't do, it's the blockchain oracle problem. You also have, which is really the new point, is computation. So you have these executables, which is a bit like a smart contract, but it's continuously running deterministic code. And it uses initiators to initiate computations, and that's actually huge because smart contracts on blockchains today are not autonomous. You have to ping them, you have to poke them to make a state transition to do something. But with DAWNs, the DAWN nodes can run these initiators, so it can automatically execute these contracts you know, if the, if the price of an asset changes or a certain time hits or pretty much whatever you want, uh, you can actually have truly autonomous smart contracts, which you just you can't achieve without oracles. It, it, you can also have other things like confidentiality. So you can use trust execution environments, multi-party computation. Uh, essentially, this computation acts as a supporting role. So it provides computations for a contract on a main chain. It doesn't directly hold custody of an asset, and it may not even be designed to last forever. It may be only need to operate for a couple of days. That could be pre-described in a service agreement, but it provides an insane amount of flexibility for what a smart contract can do. And this last point is storage. You can store data on a Dawn ledger, or you can connect to existing storage networks like Filecoin or even centralized services like AWS. And so essentially all of these components in combination, this networking, this computation, this storage, those are the fundamental components of what make up a DAWN. But we're already kind of seeing the groundwork being laid out in the form of things like OCR, off-chain reporting. That was a recent scalability upgrade to the Chainlink network, which moved the process of data aggregation from on-chain and moved that off-chain. So it essentially reduced the gas costs of Oracle updates by up to 90%, which increases data throughput by 10 times. And that allowed for a increase of decentralization of Chainlink's existing data feeds and increased update frequency and essentially enhanced Chainlink's existing services. And we're gonna see Dawns do the same exact thing. They're gonna enhance the data feeds, the verifiable randomness, the keepers, all of the other services, all of the services that Chainlink provides, Dawns enhance it. And so one of the key considerations when you're using a DAWN is how do you choose which nodes that you want in the DAWN? So that's really based on node reputation because not only is all of the data of Chainlink nodes recorded on chain, they already are, 
But DAWNs with their ledger can store a lot more data about the performance of each individual node. And so you can use analytic tools like reputation.link, market.link, and you can use that to determine the historical performance of each node. And so you can create whatever framework or use whatever framework you want for choosing nodes. And that can be either a permissioned one, you can choose the nodes, or it can be permissionless where you have a determined uh, threshold of you meet these metrics and you can join this Dawn network. And it's it's really however you want it to be. There can even be a uh, dedicated Dawn specifically for tracking the reputation of nodes on other Dawn networks. So you can kind of think of it as like a, a Dawn of Dawns where it, it's like a meta Dawn even. Like it, that's gonna track the performance data to provide even more granularized data about a node's uptime, about their accuracy, their latency, any other metric that a Dawn creator would care about, you can use the data that Dawns create and store on their ledger and store on the main chain to choose the specific nodes you want in your network. And in addition to reputation, you can also choose nodes based on how much explicit stake of link tokens they deposit. And I'll get into this in a later section, but you can choose any selection of nodes. You can choose nodes with a high reputation with a little bit of stake, or you can choose nodes with almost no reputation but a lot of stake. You can ha have any combination that you want. Uh, ultimately, Chainlink's providing the tools so that Dawn creators can choose specifically how they want their network to be created. And so now the paper starts stepping into potential use cases that these Dawns could enable. So we have things like proof reserves. Now Chainlink already has proof reserves today for things like the TUSD stablecoin where you can prove each token is backed one-to-one -one by US dollars in a bank account, and things like Paxos G where you can prove that each token is backed one-to-one -one by an ounce of gold in a bank account, things like uh, wrapped BTC, where you can prove each token is backed one-to-one -to -one by Bitcoin. Dons essentially not only allow you to prove that this collateral exists, but through the capability of holding private keys, a Don can hold the assets that underlie a minted representation. So you can decentralize wrapped Bitcoin. So you can have a committee of Dons where there is a threshold signature of some kind where you need the majority of nodes in a Don to sign off on transfers. So it basically increases the security of these wrapped tokens while still providing the proof reserves because these DAWNs can provide multiple services at the same time. And so another use case listed here is providing enterprises a blockchain abstraction layer where they don't necessarily have to pick a winner because we are increasingly going towards a multi-chain world. I think it'll be a power law distribution where there'll be concentration of adoption, but there's going to be many blockchains that institutions are going to want to interact on. And so with DAWNs, the enterprises are basically provided a single interface to connect their backend to any blockchain network that exists today or will exist into the future. So instead of performing individual integration work with each chain, you just integrate with a DAWN once and you get access to secure private key management, you have confidentiality for your data sets, and you can create blockchain agnostic applications. And Another use case, and I mean, there's there's so there's a world of possibilities with Dons, but this last one I'll mention is decentralized identity. So essentially, a committee of Dons can run a protocol for decentralized identity, something like Candid, and you can provide the ability to have privacy-preserving KYC or being able to prove a credit score for an under-collateralized loan or to prove accreditation. Basically, 
with this decentralized identity and specifically through Candid, you can have a system that's backwards compatible with existing infrastructure and you can use that connection to create a decentralized identity which is managed by a network of DAWs. Like, this goes far beyond price feeds for DeFi. You can use a DAWN to provide any capabilities that a blockchain natively cannot. And that, that, that's kind of like the main theme here, is that the combination of DAWNs and blockchains creates such advanced applications that it's going to be inevitable that the vast majority of services that people interact with are going to be hybrid smart contracts on the back end. Now shifting gears a little bit for this next section, it starts to cover fair sequencing services, which is a native solution on Dawn for solving the minor extractable value problem, MEV. So to kind of understand this, MEV is the profits that a blockchain miner can extract through their ability to arbitrarily reorder, include, or exclude transactions within a block they create. Essentially, miners normally create uh, revenue through the block reward, newly minted crypto, as well as transaction fees paid by users. But since they can order transactions in a block any way they want, they can start to front run and sandwich attack user transactions and generate even more revenue. And it's, it kind of ends up in a worse user experience. If you're on a DEX, you may get worse slippage than expected because uh, either a miner or an arbitrage bot front ran you. And we're kind of seeing things like flashbots pop up where it makes it even easier for somebody to sandwich attack your transaction, essentially, which it was going to happen inevitably without an MEV solution. But FSS aims to provide a backwards compatible, meaning no hard fork, no changes need to the main chain solution to MEV. So it goes very in depth, but essentially it aims to provide uh, order fairness of transactions the reduction of information leaks about what a transaction is about, reducing the transaction costs, and even allowing for priority ordering of transactions, which maybe seem counterintuitive, but it actually makes sense when you get into it. So essentially, the main problem that it's aiming to solve, you know, in the MEV space is the front running of DEX trades and even Oracle updates. And with FSS, it's basically a way for DAWNs to order transactions on the behalf of a smart contract or multiple smart contracts. And so the way uh, it's ordered can be any policy. And the most common will probably be like first in the mempool. When a transaction is first seen, that's ordered first before transactions that arrive later because that's not how blockchains work now. They're ordered by fees. And so actually submitting a transaction to be ordered, that can be done in a couple different ways you can submit it directly to the Dawn network, and then the Dawn will forward that on-chain and that's following the ordering policy. Or there's a backwards compatible solution where users can just submit their transactions to the mempool as usual, and the Dawn will monitor the mempool and then automatically relay that back to the contract in its correct order. So there, there's a lot of flexibility in that regard. And even creating a FSS-enabled contract, that can be done in different ways. You can have a Dawn-only contract where the only way to interact with the contract is through the Dawn, so it specifically enforces a transaction order. Uh, but that kind of has its downsides where the Dawn controls access to a contract, which is not necessarily ideal. So you can have a dual-class contract where transactions from a Dawn are prioritized in the ordering policy that's defined, or you can submit it directly on-chain, but there's a speed bump that way 
to prevent the front running of transactions, but prevent censorship of any kind. And so there's, it also gets into other nuances, like uh, on Ethereum, contracts can call other contracts, and contracts may have conflicting ordering policies. So there's kind of different ways to take that into account. You can have like a common denominator policy, or you can split a transaction into multiple transactions. There's a lot of different uh, nuances there. And an additional point of flexibility is that FSS can work with other methods of keeping a transaction private, like a commit and reveal scheme, where a user encrypts their transaction, then it's ordered, and only then is it decrypted to reveal what the transaction is actually doing. That way, nothing is revealed about the transaction, so even if you could front-run it, you would have no idea what the transaction was anyways. So it kind of talks about different methodologies of doing that, like commit and reveal, uh, using a delayed recovery to prevent denial service attack, uh, even threshold encryption, where you encrypt a transaction under a public key where the private key is split across all the different DAWs, so a majority can unencrypt it at any time, preventing DOS attacks. And also another method where a, uh, you could do a secret key sharing mechanism where a user generates the keys and then shares it. So kind of the, it's all different mechanisms to, to achieve the same thing of encrypting a transaction, then ordering it, and then decrypting it, which effectively decreases the leakage of information. Another bonus of FSS is that because uh, when you submit a transaction, the Dawn will relay it for you, regardless if you submit it directly or through the mempool, users can actually submit their transaction at a lower gas price and pay lower fees because it doesn't really matter if the transaction is mined right away as long as it eventually does, because the Dawn's going to forward it immediately. So it uh, lowers the costs for users. And another benefit, another unique way of using FSS is to prioritize specific transactions. And that may seem counterintuitive to creating order fairness, but it actually creates more fairness because you can have a policy set up where Oracle updates, like price feed updates, are always published first in the block and can never be front-ran. And so essentially that ensures not only are protocols safe from front-running Oracle updates, which can be an issue for some protocols, but it also ensures that Oracle updates are always included even if there is extreme network congestion. So that, that provides additional security guarantees to users that they're, like to lenders, that they know that a under-collateralized position is going to get liquidated because an Oracle update will happen. So it, it essentially provides additional guarantees that if a transaction needs to get through, that could be in the ordering policy as well as order fairness for all the regular transactions as well. And so essentially that's FSS, is creating the fair ordering of transactions and preventing MEV, which is a native feature on Dawn networks. In this next section, it's, it dives into the transaction execution framework. And to put that simply, it's syncing data from a Dawn to a main chain, essentially, because as I noted before, Dawns are not a standalone ledger. They're not a blockchain, they're not competing with blockchains, that's not their goal. Their goal is to be anchored to a main chain and extend the capabilities of a contract on that main chain. And in order to achieve this, there needs to be a mechanism to bring the data from a DAWN to the main chain. And the mechanisms that a DAWN does this through is through existing layer two mechanisms. So in order to achieve this, uh, as mentioned before, an application would be split into an on-chain part and an off-chain part. So the on-chain part would basically be the anchor contract. It would hold the custody of assets it would verify syncing if like a zero-knowledge proof is used and provide guardrails for protection if there's any kind of 
malicious activity detected like a huge price deviation that shouldn't be possible. And the off-chain executable code is essentially responsible for ingesting and processing transactions in a fast and low-cost way, providing native accessibility to external services through adapters and performing that syncing to ensure that a contract is continuously kept up to date with the latest state, which is computed off-chain and then represented on-chain. And this way of constructing contracts provides a large amount of benefits. You can get uh, applications that have a much higher transaction throughput. You're not limited to the 15 TPS that Ethereum has. You can get uh, hundreds to thousands and upwards of more depending on the syncing mechanism you use, which means you get dramatically lower per user fees, which is very important if we want smart contracts to become widely adopted. And it provides confidentiality capabilities for not only computation of code itself, but also the data used to execute code. And because layer two syncing mechanisms are used, there are a couple of considerations that should be considered, like that withdrawals aren't necessarily going to be instantaneous because you have to wait for a DAWN to sync. And so there's ways you can get around this by having a DAWN quickly sync and publish an update and even front run the user's transaction with the approval so that the user can instantly withdraw and other mechanisms like threshold signing and it, it's not necessarily going to support atomic composition with contracts on the layer one, just like any other layer two network, but you do have atomic composability with other contracts powered by that DAWN network. And so there may be some network effect surrounding certain DAWNs in that regard. And so now it starts to get into the different syncing mechanisms that could be used for DAWN. And there's a couple different considerations like data availability. Where is the state stored, on-chain or off-chain? the correctness assumption, how is the state actually verified to be valid, and then latency, how long generally does it take to withdraw from a DAWN. And there's different layer two mechanisms to achieve this. So the first is a ZK rollup. It has on-chain data availability, meaning anybody can access that data, and state is verified using a validity proof, aka a zero knowledge proof, where as the data is posted on-chain, a zero knowledge proof which is correct by cryptography, verifies that the state is correct. And so it's a very ideal uh, layer two scaling solution. However, ZK rollups, it takes a while to generate that proof. And so there's a bit of a trade-off there. And not all ZK rollups today are compatible with Solidity smart contracts. We may see that in the future with like ZK sync, but as of now, ZK rollups are a really secure, but kind of feature limited scaling solution. I would love to see that improve. And the next one is a Validium, where it's a flavor of ZK rollup, which it's almost the same thing, except the transaction data is stored off chain, which is ideal as it lowers costs and increases throughput, but it introduces a additional trust assumption uh, in, in whoever committee is holding that off-chain data. So it's kind of a, a trade-off there. Do you, do you want an additional trust assumption or do you want higher security? And this next one is a optimistic rollup, which is most well-known for scaling solutions like Optimism and Arbitrum. This is where it has on-chain data availability, but instead of a validity proof, which preemptively verifies that state is correct, it uses a fraud proof which retroactively proves the state is correct. So given the name optimistic, it optimistically accepts that any state transition is correct. And then there's a dispute period, usually like a week, where anybody can submit a fraud proof to say, no, I think that state change is wrong. And then that state change is done on chain. And if it was wrong, then whoever created that initial state change gets slashed. So basically the security here is based on crypto economics of a 
person who posts the state change isn't going to want to get slashed because they're going to lose money. So it's not based in cryptography like ZK rollups. However, optimistic rollups are very generalized and can support solidity contracts very easily and you don't need to create a validity proof which is computationally expensive. However, the major trade-off is that you need to wait about a week to withdraw. So, you know, there's there's going to be always trade-offs in these scaling solutions. It's basically whatever the user prefers. This next one, it's a bit more flexible and it relies much more heavily on the Dawn for security. This is a threshold signing where the data availability can be on-chain or off-chain and it uses a threshold of nodes to sign what is the correct state. So this is much more of like a side chain essentially. There's instant latency and because a user in the contracts are already trusting the Dawn nodes for Oracle data, which means you're trusting it to perform the correct outputs, it means you could probably also trust it for performing the state executions itself. So this is a very simple syncing mechanism, simple in that it's elegant. The uh, trust assumption here is also crypto economics because the nodes are getting paid in link tokens, which they're not going to want to devalue. And there can also be an aspect of explicit staking in this regard where they can get slashed for this. And this last method of syncing uses trusted execution environments. So the data availability is both flexible on-chain or off-chain, but it uses hardware-based attestations uh, to validate that the state is correct. However, the trust assumption is that the hardware is hasn't been manipulated, which there <laughs> with Intel SGX, there's been a lot of different vulnerabilities revealed. So hopefully, trust execution environment technology continues to evolve and continues to improve, particularly with uh, open source hardware. That would be ideal. However, TEEs don't need to be used on their own. You can actually use TEEs in combination with threshold signing, meaning only one of those two need to be working correctly for the state change to happen as it should. So you can kind of have this defense in depth mechanism. So essentially, to sum up this section, there are a variety of different layer two syncing mechanisms that can be used to bring data from a DAWN onto the main chain and to verify that the state changes initiated by a DAWN are legitimate and that the off-chain computations occurred exactly as they should have. Now, I think it's kind of important to point out here is that DAWNs aren't necessarily competing with layer twos. You can actually use a DAWN network to enhance an existing layer two with contracts. So in that case, the main chain, so to speak, would be an existing layer two. I think that with DAWNs, an ideal usage would actually be like a cross layer two solution, uh, providing not only like a bridge for tokens across chains, but also any kind of generalized messages. You can create not only a blockchain agnostic application, but you could create a layer two agnostic application by using a DAWN as like the substrate to connect all of these different on-chain and off-chain environments to each other to essentially create a web of where your contract can be deployed. So it kind of, it breaks down those barriers and it makes it a lot easier to deploy a contract within all of the environments that you would want to support. So this next section, section seven, its primary focus is trust minimization. So users, they may treat the main chain, like let's say it's Ethereum, as something that's more trustworthy than the Dawn itself. So this would kind of follow the principle of least privilege, which the paper covers where a system and its components and actors should have the privileges strictly scoped to what each component actually needs to accomplish its specific task. In the context of Chainlink, this is done through various mechanisms. This first one 
is data source authentication. Essentially, data sources cryptographically signing their data. So that would make it impossible for a DAWN or any of the nodes to manipulate the data because as soon as you change the data, then you can immediately see that it was tampered with with the cryptographic signature. However, the vast majority of web servers today don't cryptographically sign their data. It, your connection to the server is encrypted and that's why you have a lock in the corner of your browser. However, you can't use that encrypted session to prove anything to other parties because it's symmetric encryption. What you need is asymmetric encryption like a public key and private key and that does exist in the certificates. However, that's not commonly used to actually sign data from a, from a web server. There are some initiatives to enable this like TLSN, TLS Evidence Extensions, OpenID Connect. And while OpenID Connect has some adoption, the other two don't, and in general, all of them aren't that widely adopted. So it's, it's kind of limited in its regard. However, there are a variety of ways to enable data to become cryptographically signed from the producers of that. Uh, this first method, which I think is pretty interesting, it uses signed HTTP extensions, which is used by uh, Google Accelerated Mobile Pages, AMP. So when you're on the Chrome mobile browser, you may sometimes see uh, pages being powered by AMP. Essentially what that means is that that content is cached on Google servers. And in order to ensure that the proper content is cached, it has to be cryptographically signed. So that provides proof that that data actually came from the correct publisher. While that doesn't necessarily help with like price data or anything real time like that, it can help for like news publications like a uh, weather or election results. You can use this cached data from AMP and use that to be able to prove that data came from a specific source. This is a pretty interesting way to use existing infrastructure to get signed data, but the ideal method that this dis uh, paper describes is using a Chainlink node in order to cryptographically sign data. Now, regular Chainlink nodes they not only deliver data, but every piece of data that's moved between system is always cryptographically signed. And what this paper introduces is something called authenticated data origination, where it's like a simplified version of a Chainlink node where it specifically provides data providers the ability to cryptographically sign their APIs without providing the other uh, more complicated functionalities of being an oracle, like actually submitting it on-chain. So this provides a very seamless plug-and-play solution for data providers to begin cryptographically signing their APIs, which can then be used by DAWNs to forward this cryptographically signed data for which they cannot manipulate. This also provides a way for data providers to kind of enter the Chainlink ecosystem with as minimal friction as possible. They can run this ADO Chainlink node to begin signing their data, and then once they want to start generating more revenue streams, they can convert that into a full-blown Oracle node and actually begin delivering that data on-chain, like we're already seeing uh, other data providers do, like uh, Kraken and Kaiko, where they deliver their data on-chain directly. So this is a very powerful mechanism to introducing trust minimization in a very seamless manner. However, just signing data alone doesn't help in a couple situations. If you need confidentiality, you can't change the data without breaking the cryptographic signature. So you have to include all the data or none of it. And it doesn't help if the data source itself is reporting faulty and manipulated data. It doesn't matter if it's signed or not. That could be solved through decentralization. You just have lots of data sources and then you aggregate that. But for confidentiality, that one's a little bit more complicated. So with the ADO, it can actually support the ability to have functional queries. 
which is essentially like pre-processed data, like a, a true false query. So you could have something like you want to publish proof that your bank account is over a million dollars, but you don't actually want to prove how much you have. You can have a functional query where that ADO uh, run by the web server would check how much you have, then report back true or false, cryptographically sign that true or false attestation, which you can then use on-chain, providing confidentiality of that data. And solving the issue of faulty data from data sources, you can combine multiple data points, but it's not entirely uh, scalable because each data point has its own cryptographic signature. So, but what you can do is generate a zero-knowledge proof where you take all this signed data, put it through a zero-knowledge proof creation mechanism, then create a single proof with a single signature to be able to prove that uh, this data meetingized the result from multiple signed data sources. And that's cryptographically proven to be the case. Additionally, the paper also introduces the concept of functional signatures, where a signer can delegate signing capabilities to other entities where they can only sign messages if that message is within a predefined range that they define. So that allows for easy uh, aggregation of data. If a data provider reports $1,000 for the price of a token and it says it's okay to be 1% of that range, you can medianize that data with other data sources with the same uh, range and get a medianized value that has been cryptographically signed by all of these entities combined into a single signature. So providing the ability to cryptographically sign data is very important so that DAWNs can't manipulate the data even if they wanted to. There's other forms of trust minimization of a DAWN that can improve the guarantees provided to users. So in one case, it's failure clients. So this is used in the Chainlink network today where you have a primary client providing Oracle services. And if for whatever reason that client fails, it can fall back to a previous client version. So today, Chainlink price feeds are run on the OCR feeds, but if for some reason the OCR client were to fail, it will automatically fall back to the Flux monitor feeds, which was the previous version. And if that one fails, it could even fall back to the original uh, run log version. So this reduces the amount of trust that you would need in a single client version. There's also minority reports where the minority of nodes, maybe just one in a network, can report that the majority of nodes in that Dawn network is being malicious. And that could send a report on chain and then the contract can favor safety over liveness in that situation. And there can be different ways of resolving the situation. There is also the concept of guardrails, which are like additional protections that take different forms. So you have circuit breakers. So that's kind of similar concept to actual circuit breakers where if there's a large deviation, like let's say a price feed goes from saying it's about $1,000 to now $100 million for the price of an asset, that's probably wrong and that's a wild deviation. So you can have a circuit breaker prevent a contract from ingesting data that could be potentially incorrect. There's also the form of escape hatches where under adverse uh, circumstances, as identified by the community of nodes, token holders, other trustees, uh, it could be predefined in whatever DAWN to shut down the DAWN powered contract and only allow users to withdraw their funds. So this is commonly used in other layer two networks, but this is essentially like a, a solution of last resort if everything has to shut down and only support withdraws. Finally, there's also a failover where if 
a DAWN for whatever reason is corrupted and transactions are not being submitted to the contract through the DAWN, users could submit their transactions on-chain directly to the contract, which cannot be censored. It may go through a speed bump, but this failover basically means you don't necessarily need to trust the DAWN at all. If you want to send the transaction on-chain, you could do that as well just for the higher cost of creating an on-chain transaction. So it's an additional protection. An additional form, and this is kind of an interesting part where it talks about governance, is in particular trust-minimized governance. So there's kind of two different forms. You have uh, evolutionary governance where some updates may not be mission critical. It may be like a performance upgrade, but these updates can be queued in a way where it may take like 30 days to actually fully activate. Therefore, if it's an upgrade users don't want, they have optimal time to withdraw and leave and go to a different dawn or uh, leave the ecosystem completely. So it's more of like a continuous evolution where the community can validate if this upgrade is something that they want or not, or if it's uh, buggy code or not, which would of course be already audited, but things can happen. The other side of trust-minimized governance is emergency governance. So if there is a critical vulnerability or critical issue, you can't wait 30 days or whatever the time lock is. You need to get it fixed right away. So what you could have is a decentralized multi-sig of entities around the world from different geographic regions, from different organizations that can sign uh, fixes to any vulnerabilities that may appear. And so this is something that is used commonly for cybersecurity incident response teams where there's a lot of value at stake. And given this is a optional mechanism, but this is a way to provide uh, a way to fix any issues in a trust-minimized manner. And I think it's important to note that governance in the Chainlink network, it's not monolithic. Each individual DAWN network can have its own governance scheme, and it can be defined however you need it. You can even have like a no governance where once the DAWN is deployed, it's always going to execute the way it was originally deployed to. So it's kind of a, there's an entire spectrum of how much governance do you actually want in your DAWN. You could use a DAO, you could use an organization, or no governance scheme at all. It's, it, it's ultimately up to the user for what they really want. This last form of trust minimization is around being able to identify nodes. And so this uses public key infrastructure, kind of like how we have the domain name system where you type in google.com and that redirects it to the correct IP address. There's also the ENS system, the Ethereum name system, which turns Ethereum addresses and any other blockchain addresses into readable names. So this is something that the Chainlink network already supports today under the data.eth domain, where you can have something like eth-usd.data.eth, and that'll give you the contract address for the ETHUSD price feed. This can also be applied for DAWN networks. This can be applied for individual nodes. And essentially, it not only provides like a web of trust model where you can see what entities trust which entities, it also provides strong security because it can't be manipulated like spoofing attacks on DNS. And it also provides a lot more transparency because every time the ENS is updated, that's going to be publicly viewable and that can create updates to other contracts. So essentially, this allows users to be able to identify the identity of each individual node. Now, this next section, section eight, it's essentially about deployment considerations, how this, how DAWNs will be rolled out into production. And essentially what they lay out is that there will be pre-built adapters and executables. 
and they're going to specifically monitor the performance of those executables and adapters to ensure that they're reliable and secure. And then as they're proven, more adapters and executables can be rolled out over time and eventually become entirely permissionless for anybody to uh, deploy adapters and executables to existing Dawn networks. It's kind of important to note that anybody can create their own Dawn network with whatever adapters and executables you want but existing Dawn networks may only support specific executables and adapters. And this, this provides benefits in that it prevents state bloat where there's not unneeded data on the Dawn ledger, and it makes pricing of services easier because you can have each adapter, each executable, have a specific price and setting to need a more generalized pricing mechanism which could be vulnerable to denial of service attacks. So with Dawns, a consideration is the being able to change the Dawn membership over time. And the paper kind of mentions there's different key sharing mechanisms you can use where you can basically forward keys to new nodes so the data doesn't have to be re-encrypted. But if any previous keys are leaked, then all data can be uh, revealed, which is not ideal. And there's a, another method where new keys are created and it provides forward security. So if previous keys are leaked, there's no issue, but all data on the Dawn would need to be re-encrypted under that new key. So it's kind of just small technical nuances, but essentially as the Dawn changes its set of Oracle nodes, it needs to change the keys because each Dawn network has a specific public key associated with it. So when the Dawn creates an Oracle update, it uses threshold signatures where each node has a particular threshold of that signature. And then if there's a majority signing it, then they all sign it under one particular public key, which makes it easy to identify a Dawn. Lastly, this part notes about accountability, where a Dawn can store a lot more data about the performance of each node, like I noted before, but a Dawn ledger itself, just like a regular blockchain, can fork and produce two different blocks at the same block height. However, just like layer twos, this can be resolved on the main chain using checkpoints and a syncing mechanism. So something like rollups are able to prevent this through validity proofs or fraud proofs to make this essentially a non-issue. And you can also have service agreements where the deposited funds from a Dawn can be slashed if they don't give a checkpoint update at a particular interval or if progress isn't made within a sufficient amount of time. Now, this last section, section nine, economics and crypto economics, is probably the one that I think most people are going to be interested in as it introduces the explicit staking mechanism that will be used in the Chainlink 2.0 network. So all of the other features mentioned here, they work when the majority of nodes are honest, but it's equally important, if not more important, to ensure that the majority of Dawn nodes stay honest. They have an incentive to be honest. And this is achieved through crypto economic incentives of both the implicit and explicit variety. So before getting into the explicit staking, I wanna kinda of go over the implicit staking aspect because this is already being used to secure the Chainlink network today and it's not something that people necessarily fully grasp when they're looking at the security of the network. So implicit staking is essentially exposure to the link token and exposure to future revenue. So the paper defines it as future fee opportunity where Oracle nodes with the reputation attract fees for their services and any misbehavior may jeopardize that future fee payments and essentially would penalize them with the opportunity cost of losing future revenue, which could be substantial as the Chainlink ecosystem grows. 
So this is kind of something that we already see with like existing blockchains like Bitcoin. Bitcoin miners want to maintain the value of their mining equipment and to maintain their future cash flows of Bitcoin, which is denominated in BTC. They need to uphold that value and not devalue BTC because their revenue depends upon it. So this is kind of a, a fundamental aspect of how crypto networks are secure is through this native token, which ensures that all participants, all actors within the network who contribute something have financial exposure to the network itself, both in the form of its native token and in the form of future revenue, which is what this paper really dives into. So while future fee opportunity already exists in the Chainlink network today, this paper introduces a implicit incentive framework for essentially quantifying how much security do you get from these implicit methods of security. So this includes not only uh, extrapolating the amount of fees that a node would generate and therefore its opportunity cost, but also other considerations like performance history, their uptime, their accuracy, and their latency, which determines future revenue. Also their data access. If they have access to permission APIs, that can mean a higher revenue as the ecosystem grows and they want access to this data. There's also an aspect of DAWN participation. If a DAWN node is within a highly reputable DAWN network, it has a higher incentive to be honest and continue earning revenue from this trusted DAWN network rather than uh, perform any malicious activity and lose out on that revenue. And there's also another key consideration of cross-platform activity, where a DAWN node may be a traditional enterprise like Deutsche Telekom, or they may be a proof-of-stake validator like Stake.Fish, who created F2 Pool, which is the, one of the largest BTC mining pools. They have revenue in services outside of the Chainlink network that are dependent on their reputation. If they are malicious in the Chainlink network, not only do they lose revenue in the Chainlink network for the dawn they were malicious on and all other dawns that they get booted out of, but also for their external services as their clients can't trust this entity anymore. And it really wouldn't make sense for these enterprises and traditional data providers to destroy their reputation in that regard when their future revenue is far more profitable and therefore far more profitable to stay honest. Another aspect of FFO future fee opportunity is speculative FFO, where nodes participate in the Chainlink network not just to generate future revenue from their existing uh, offerings and their supported DAWs, but also to take advantage of new opportunity to run new jobs and join new DAWN networks. A highly reputable node is much more likely to be added to additional DAWN networks than a lower reputation or a less secure node. So building a reputation, a performance history, and operational expertise positions that node advantageously to earn more fees in future networks. So they're not only earning revenue from the networks they serve now, but also earning revenue from networks they could be added to in the future, which is a little harder to measure because it depends on adoption, but it's something that can't necessarily be ignored. Another consideration is reputation, where this incentive framework works if nodes are pseudo-anonymous because it just depends on the data on the ledger and how much revenue they generate. However, nodes can also attach their public identity to their node, and that should also be taken into consideration uh, in the cost of attack, which is really what the implicit incentive framework is used for determining. What is the cost of attack? How much would a node have to be bribed in order to see more profit from a bribe than they would get from their future revenue? So it's kind of quantifying security. And the, all this implicit 
incentives are all in combination with the explicit staking, which we'll, I'll, I'll dive into. It, it's complementary. So now I'm going to jump into probably the most juicy part of the paper, which is explaining how explicit staking works in Chainlink 2.0. So staking for Oracle networks is fundamentally different than staking in a proof-of-stake blockchain, because in the latter, nodes are staking as an incentive to generate valid blocks of transactions. And that can be verified using hard and fast cryptographic methods. You can verify if a transaction was properly signed. You can verify if the address actually has enough funds. You can verify if a node double signs two blocks at the same height. That's all verifiable using cryptography. However, Oracle networks, they may use perfectly okay cryptography, but that doesn't necessarily matter because the data they're signing could be manipulated because it comes from the outside world. So essentially a blockchain is trying to ensure internal consistency, while an Oracle network is trying to ensure external consistency. And so those have very different goals and therefore the staking mechanisms for a blockchain is not equal, it has different considerations and different trade-offs, uh, different implementations than staking for an Oracle network. So in Chainlink's implementation of explicit staking, it really focuses on the model presented on two dynamics. The first is resisting a powerful adversary who can use advanced bribing methods to try and subvert and attack the network. So other staking models for Oracle networks, they predominantly aim to protect against a narrow or specific set of attacks from not necessarily realistic adversary. One of the bribing tactics that the Chainlink staking implementation specifically protects against is prospective bribery, where a malicious actor chooses specific nodes to bribe based on their role in the network. So in the staking model presented in this paper, it's not assumed that non-adversary controlled nodes are just honest. It's only assumed that they're rational economic actors, meaning they will accept a bribe if it's larger than the, what they have to earn by being honest. That is a much more realistic situation which could potentially be seen in the wild. The second focus of Chainlink's explicit staking mechanism is to achieve a super linear staking impact where an adversary requires a budget quadratically larger than the sum of all deposited stake. So now I'll dive into how this explicit staking mechanism actually works. To provide some background, each Oracle report created by a DAWN is an aggregation of data from all the responding nodes and delivered on chain. There's also a surface agreement defining how far each node can deviate from the collective uh, medianized value, as well as how far the medianized value can deviate from the true correct price. In order to achieve this level of cryptoeconomic security required, the staking mechanism uses a watchdog priority system. What this means is each reporting round where a new Oracle report is created, each node can act as a watchdog and raise an alert if it believes the aggregate report is incorrect, meaning the medianized value is wrong from the correct true price. Importantly, in each reporting round, every node is assigned a public priority number that determines the order in which their alerts are processed. So for example, if there's a network with 10 nodes, each reporting round will randomly assign each node a number from one to 10. And so this mechanism is designed to uh, achieve reward concentration, meaning if a alert is raised and it's deemed to be an correct alert, which I'll dive into, 
the alerting node with the highest priority gets all of the slashed stake. It's not spread across the nodes, it all goes to the node with the highest priority. But we need to take a bit of a step back and look at how is an alert raised by watchdog nodes actually determined to be valid or not. If it's valid, that means the aggregate report was incorrect. If it's invalid, then that means essentially it was a false positive and the original aggregate value was correct. This is achieved through a two-tier oracle network, where the first tier is the default oracle network, it continuously produces reports, while the second tier oracle network is essentially a backup which is only ever used if a alert, aka a dispute, is raised. This second tier network is a high cost and maximum reliability system which is too slow and expensive to use during normal use during the regular updates, but it's perfect for resolving disputes and performing arbitration. This second tier network, uh, it could be designed in any way. It can include only nodes with a strong historical performance history and a strong reputation. It can use an order of magnitude more nodes than the first tier, and it can use an order of magnitude more data sources to pull from. Additionally, this second tier can use Deco or Town Crier to provide additional cryptographic proof of if a report was valid or invalid. Now, someone may ask, why wouldn't you just use the second tier Oracle network for all Oracle reports? But the brilliance of this design is that you get the security properties of the second tier while only paying the operating costs of the first tier. This is possible through the use of credible threats of arbitration because every node in the first tier network knows that if a majority of the nodes collude to produce a wrong report, that the second tier network is going to get called into action and that will end up resulting in them getting their entire stake slashed. And the second tier will be called into action because there is a strong incentive for not just honest nodes, but economically rational nodes to raise an alert because if they end up being the highest priority, then they stand to win the concentrated slashed stake from all of the malicious nodes. This watchdog priority is directly what results in the superlinear staking impact. If there is a dawn with n nodes and each node deposits d in stake, the total stake of that network would be d times n. An incorrect oracle report requires a dishonest majority of nodes, meaning their slash stake would be worth at least dn divided by 2. This reward goes to the highest priority watchdog, however any node can be a watchdog. Therefore, in order to attack the network, each node would need to be bribed by that concentrated reward amount, dn divided by 2, and that means the total budget an adversary requires is dn squared divided by 2. That is quadratic in the number of nodes. That is an incredible increase in crypto economic security. It, it really cannot be overstated here. To make this clear, the paper introduces a couple of examples which are pretty impactful. So imagine there is a dawn with 100 nodes where each node stakes $20,000 in link for a total stake of $2 million. However, this network would be protected against an adversary with a budget of up to $100 million. That's 50 times higher. That's because $20,000 in stake times 100 nodes squared divided by 2 is 100 million. Imagine that same Dawn network increased in decentralization from 100 nodes to 300 nodes, where every node still stakes $20,000. That means the total amount of stake would have gone from 2 million to 6 million. 
However, the budget an adversary requires to attack the network has gone from $100 million to $900 million. That $900 million is 150 times higher than the total amount of stake in that network. And that's because $20,000 times 300 nodes squared divided by two is 900 million. To put that in perspective, the number of nodes only increased by three times, but the amount of crypto economic security increased by nine times. This means with every additional node, you are getting greater and greater amount of crypto economic security. Now imagine that same network with 300 nodes increased in decentralization to 1,000 nodes where each node stakes $20,000 each for a total stake of $20 million. The network would be protected against an adversary with a budget up to $10 billion. That is 500 times higher than the amount of deposit at stake. That is an incredible increase. And with every additional node added, the cost of attack is going to keep getting higher. I truly cannot overstate the impact this has on crypto economic security. This quadratic scaling, which is the reason why the cost of attack increases so much, is it's nothing short of revolutionary in Oracle technology. And this is going to secure the Chainlink network as it scales into trillions of dollars of total value locked. Now, stepping back a bit, there's a bit of a nuance on how the alerting process works. So the model presented by default is a practical but slightly longer multi-round protocol, meaning users can optimistically accept Oracle reports due to this credible threat of arbitration from the first tier network, or they can wait to see if there are any alerts raised and wait until any possible raised alerts are settled. However, not all protocols can do this. So it's also introduced of a single round mechanism which uses secret bits in private communication with the second tier network so that the alerting process happens within a single round and Oracle reports don't have to be optimistically accepted. This requires a little bit more engineering to pull off, a bit more cryptography. However, this would provide additional benefits to this staking mechanism. And while the superlinear impact may not necessarily be quadratic in this uh, single round mechanism, it would still be significantly higher than the total amount of deposited stake by all the nodes in a DAWN. So summing it up, with each round there can be three different outcomes. The first is a complete agreement. All the nodes in the network agree that the aggregated report is correct and each node is paid a fee for their service. The second would be a partial agreement where some nodes are offline or disagree, but the majority of nodes are honest and no alerts are raised, so all of the honest nodes are paid a fee for their services and all the other nodes are slashed only modestly, maybe about 10 times what the fee payment would have been, so they could recoup their losses within the day. The third outcome would be if an alert is raised, which has two outcomes uh, potentially of its own. So the first would be that the alert was deemed correct by the second tier. So that means the first tier Oracle report was indeed wrong. That means the highest priority alerting watchdog receives more than DN divided by two, meaning all of the slash stake from the malicious majority of nodes. The other outcome if an alert is raised is if the second tier agrees with the first tier, meaning the alert was incorrect. That means all of the alerting nodes are modestly slashed for trying to create a false positive. Now, because all of the slashed stake goes to the highest priority watchdog for the super linear staking impact, 
Users may want compensation if they optimistically accepted a report that was wrong. However, such a situation would be rare because of this credible threat of arbitration, but it could happen. And it's noted that the solution here is misreporting insurance, and this could be done through smart contracts, where there could be underwriters providing collateral backing this insurance agreement where settlement happens using on-chain data. They take the report from the first tier, the report from the second tier in the same round, and if the values are different by a certain percentage, then the insurance will pay out to the users. So this is a very trust-minimized form of insurance. But because the Chainlink network generates a lot of data about its nodes and its performance, the cost of insurance can be kept very low while still being sustainable and profitable for the underwriters providing the insurance. Towards the end of the staking section, it starts to talk about the virtuous cycle of cryptoeconomic security, the economies of scale, and the network effect. So starting with the virtuous cycle of economic security, this is derived from the combination of superlinear staking and future fee opportunity. So as the total amount secured by a particular DAWN rises, the amount of additional stake it takes to add a fixed amount of economic security decreases. This is the superlinear impact. With every additional user added to a DAWN, the costs for all existing and future users also go down. Therefore, it is cheaper to join an existing DAWN network than to try and create your own Oracle network. Additionally, if the amount of fees increase, then an additional amount of stake is incentivized to be deposited as well as additional nodes to be added to the network. That's if the amount of yield is to stay consistent. Additionally, the value provided by DAWN networks is also superlinear. This means the value is derived from both an economies of scale, greater per user cost efficiency as the service volume increases, as well as network effects, which is an increase in network utility as users adopt DAWNs more widely. So as an existing contract increases in total value locked, and as new contracts are created, the total amount of fees available to DAWNs grows. And as that grows, that creates an incentive for the creation of more decentralized services, which ends up resulting in more fees being paid to use those services, creating a cycle of increased services and increased crypto-economic security, essentially solving the chicken or egg problem of bootstrapping a network. This is the part of the paper where it concludes essentially stating that the Chainlink network is going to provide the most secure and most cost-efficient Oracle solution in the entire market. I mean, it already does, but it's going to continue doing that as well through these mechanisms. The Chainlink network is not a static protocol. It's not going to stay the way it is today for years into the future. It's going to evolve according to user needs, what users are actually going to need. And with price feeds, those exist because users needed price feeds. That's what created DeFi. You know, if, if the next Oracle service is going to be something entirely different in a different model, then Chainlink can evolve to support that model. And along those same lines, all of the features and all of the services presented in this paper can be rolled out on a demand basis. If there's more demand for a particular type of service, that could be prioritized across others. So the features in the paper are probably not going to all be released all at the same time, but are probably going to be released as like initial implementations over time, which will eventually accumulate into becoming a dawn. So ending this already probably way too long recording, hope you enjoyed it if you stayed around this long. I 
thank you for your your support. I truly love every each and every one of my friends. The key takeaway is essentially that the future of the Chainlink network has truly never looked brighter than it does today. Now, you may have listened to this recording because you didn't want to read a 136-page white paper, and I don't necessarily blame you, but if you really want to learn the juicy details, all of the nuances, and all of the other features and considerations I wasn't able to cover in this time frame, I truly recommend that you read the white paper, or at least the um, uh, SCURF summary posted by Sergey on the Smart Contract Research Form, which provides additional context. But this is truly an exceptional paper with some very innovative things, and there's, there's definitely going to be more content to come in both the form of Twitter threads and probably also smart content articles with me and CO. I think that this will be the future of Oracle networks, not just Oracle networks, but really smart contracts as a whole. Hybrid smart contracts are going to be how decentralized applications are going to be created. That's how mass adoption of smart contracts is going to happen, in my humble opinion. So again, I thank you for listening to this recording, and I hope you all stay based and incredibly link-pilled.